0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Did you love hearing Shabazz Palaces on Atlanta? Or Etta James in the new phone commercial for LG? A music supervisor was responsible for those. Welcome to The Future of What? I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Merch Table was created by musicians to help other musicians sell directly to their fans. For 15 years, they've worked with a diverse range of artists to deliver an exceptional customer experience. From projects as big as a top 10 billboard ranking pre-order and early bird ticket sales, to jobs as small as helping a band sell their first t-shirt, Merch Table can manage it all. Visit merchtable.com and open a store today. On today's show, we talk to music supervisors about what they do, how they do it, and how they got into it. It's all coming up on The Future of What.
1: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No. Mind your
0: own business. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Jen Malone. Jen, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you so much for having me. So today I want to talk to you about a couple different things. I want to talk to you about the show Atlanta, which you supervise music for, but I also want to talk to you about just music supervising in general, Mm -hmm. because this is a show about the music business, and so we talk to people who are, you know, working inside all the various professions that comprise the music industry. So, we're really interested in getting to not only what you do, but like how did you get into it? So, how did you get into doing music supervision?
2: (laughs) Well, I actually started out in PR, was a publicist for rock bands. And after doing that for many years, I represented bands like The Hives and The Helicopters, piebald Hydrahead Records. So, I had a pretty eclectic roster more more in the rock aspect and after doing that for many years i just got really burnt out of doing pr and working with fans on that level so i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do and i was watching the film iron man and it was just so big and loud and attitude and the music supervisor credit rolled by and i was like music supervisor okay that's what i want to do <laughs> So I was living in Boston at the time, I ran my company out of Boston, and I pretty much just packed up everything and moved out here, understanding that I knew nothing about music supervision or publishing or master or clearance or or how anything in television or film kind of worked. So I knew I had to pretty much start at the bottom, but I did all my research when I moved out here. I knew every music supervisor and what shows they were working and who their agents were and anything I can find on them on the web and read about them. So I emailed a lot of people and some people were kind enough to take meetings with me. And I was told about this event here in L.A. called Honeypot. Mm mm-hmm. And so I went and very serendipitously, I ended up meeting Dave Jordan, who does all the music supervision for Marvel films, including Iron Man. (laughs) So needless to say, I was super excited. And I said to him, Richard Kraft won't get back to me about getting my resume to you. And he said, you know who my agent is? I said, yeah, of course I do. I want to work for you. (sighs) And he said, that's creepy, but awesome. What's your name? (laughs) And so it went from there. And, you know, I told him, I want to intern for you. And she was like, you know, you've been a successful publicist. You've been in this business. Why would you want to intern? And I just told him that nobody's going to pay me to do something I don't know how to do. And this is the music business. And you have to start at the bottom. And that's what I need to do. And so he said, "Okay, start next week." So, wow, I yeah, it was amazing. And so I did that for summer, and he also hooked me up with Julia Michaels, who's also amazing. She does Pitch Perfect now, and at the time, a Blind Side. She did Devil Wears Prada. She's just she's fantastic, and. It was just great to be in that environment and just kind of learning this new language of master and publishing and MSN and all in and aside and, (laughs) you know, because it was just something I just didn't know. So from there, it was towards the end of that summer and I was on an email news group of women in the music industry and somebody posted that Viacom, that MTV was looking for interns in their music supervision department. And I was like, okay. Okay. Going to work at Julia's house is one thing. Going to intern at Viacom where I will be with a bunch of you know, 17-year-olds, you which know, is great for them. But, you know, this is my second career and I am not 17. But it was like, you know what, it's work. I will learn. I will get to know people. Just kind of suck it up and go do it. So I went in for the interview and the people that interviewed me said, you know, you need to get school credit because this Viacom and all of the big major companies, you know, you have to be getting school credit in order to do the internship. So they said, do whatever you need to do. Just get into that internship, into the orientation. And again, you have to get school credit. So I went down to LA Community College and I just filled out an ad slip and I was like, yeah, just bill me later. And obviously, I never paid. I never went. But I had that, you know, that ad slip.
0: (laughs) I hope no one's from L.A. Community College (laughs) is listening to this podcast at the moment.
2: (laughs) Well, you know what? It was absolutely nuts. Like, I just remember going in because this ad dropped it. It was just chaos. (laughs) And it was just like, just give me that piece of paper. Thank you. That says that I'm enrolled. And that's all I needed to get into the Viacom system. And I interned for about three days and then I got hired as a coordinator for a couple of VH1 shows. (laughs) And I've pretty much been working ever since, you know, just continuing to network and to meet people. I took a class at UCLA about music supervision and Thomas Gulabich, who does Breaking Bad was our teacher. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And, you know, I just kind of bounced from show to show and, you know kind of, you know, through one of my neighbors I did a short independent film which led to another indie film and it just kind of snowballed from there and yeah, I've just been super lucky and worked with some amazing people. I did a season, a TV season in 2012 with two music supervisors, Kevin Edelman and Andy Gowen, and they did How I Met Your Mother and Homeland and Criminal Minds and Bones. And then I also have worked on a ton of reality TV. So I've been able to kind of have the best of both worlds and really learn because they are so different. They couldn't be more different from, well, from every standpoint, but speaking on a music supervision level.
0: Reality TV and and scripted TV are completely different? Yes. Yes. Why? In what way?
2: Well, for first and foremost, I don't have a script in reality television. So I don't know what the story editors are kind of going to put together sometimes reality is not really reality (laughs) television. And so there's that, you know, obviously you, you know, you get the scripts and you know that, you know, we're going to have a song here and we're going to have a song there with reality. It's just kind of, I just don't know what's coming up in the next couple
0: episodes. Does that make it easier in some ways though, because you've got, you can sort of just stick in some favorite songs or something, or is it hard?
2: they both have their challenges. I mean, the thing to remember about music supervision is that it's not about what I like. Right. You know, if that was the case, the helicopters would be in every single show <laughs> that I've ever worked on, but it's about what is right, you know, the director and the producer and the network what their vision is for the sound of the show. And that's my job is to help fulfill that vision, first and foremost on the creative aspect, but one thing that is super, super important. And I can't stress this enough. is clearance. Right. Because that's great. If you have an awesome song, but if you can't clear it, right, you you can't use it. And so the first day of my internship with Dave Jordan, the first thing he told me, literally, I sat down with my little notebook, it was ready to go. He said, Okay, number one, learn how to do your own clearance.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: And I've, I've never had anybody else do my own clearance. Yeah. And that's what enabled, you know, if I didn't know how to do that, I would, I mean, well, besides Atlanta, I would have never done all the shows that led to Atlanta.
0: Yeah, well, this is a good segue into Atlanta because I know you guys have had some trouble clearing songs for Atlanta. So why don't you tell us what is clearance and how do you accomplish it?
2: Clearance is getting the right to use the song. There are two sides. There's the master side, which is the actual physical recording and the publishing, which is the actual Song, the music and lyrics. And you have to go out to all of the parties to get the rights. And sometimes that is not easy. For example, on the publishing side, you can have anything from one writer, which is amazing, to, you know, 15 writers. I mean, Just for kind of kicks, I looked at some of the Kanye songs because I've never had to clear a Kanye song, thank God. And there's like 15 writers because he's sampling three different songs. Right. And you have to get the rights from everyone. And everyone owns a percentage of the song and that percentage has to add up to 100%. Right. So if you're short 0.02%, you can't use the song.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So it's just, you know, the business end and it's a lot, a lot of detective work. And it's finding people, you know, like referencing Atlanta, you know, finding people on Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter and, you know, could because for any artist out there, put your contact information on your site or somewhere because, you know, at the end of the day, it's I want to give you money. Right. (laughs) So, you know, don't make it so hard for me to find you.
0: I think that's one of the funny things that people don't understand about the music business who are not in the music business. You know, they see all this turmoil. They see these, you know, the Department of Justice consent decree rulings. They see all these weird minutiae things. And they're just like, why does the music industry just not have its crap together? You know, I think this is one of the things that people don't understand is, you know, when you're actually trying to get rights from artists, it's like the artist has to give their consent, and they have to have their business in order. And that means they have to be findable. They have to, you know, hopefully have a publishing deal for their own benefit in a lot of ways. You know, the easiest people to deal with are the ones who all their business stuff is just clear, right? Like we know where to go to get the master rights. We know where to go to get the publishing rights. Boom. You know, when it's really difficult, it makes it really hard. But one of the coolest things about Atlanta, for example, is you guys are using so much local music. You guys are using like the real music that people are really listening to in Atlanta. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you. But, you know, from a business standpoint, it does make clearance that much more difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean and, and to one thing you said though, I don't think it is easier if somebody has a publishing deal because automatically, you know, if somebody has a deal with Sony ATV, I mean I, I love Sony ATV. Some of my dearest friends work there, but it makes everything a lot more difficult and straight up, you know, the price goes up. And sometimes I can't afford songs that are on the major publishers. Oh, absolutely. Because budget is another big thing. But having your business together so that when I ask you, when I contact you through wherever, hopefully just on your website, and I say, who owns your publishing? you don't say ASCAP or BMI because those are not publishers. Right, right. You know, you say, I own everything 100% or understand, well, I own 60%, but one of my other writers is signed with Sony ATV and that's fine. And that's great. And I can work with the information, but I need the information. So having a basic understanding of who owns what, will make it easier. And I think I, on this point, I can speak for music supervisors everywhere. You just need to make it easy for us to clear and to get to you. Because otherwise, if, you know, I've been burned before and I'm never going to use that artist again. Right. I don't trust them. So if you understand the base, I own everything, 100%, I can license this.
0: Right. But if it turns out you can't, that's really, that can be really a problem.
2: Yeah. Huge problem.
0: I'm glad you called me out on that point because it's true. I mean, I own and run a, an independent record label. So obviously the vast majority of my artists do not have publishing deals. Mm-hmm. And on one level, you're right. It's, it's funny that I said that because really what I meant, I think, when I think about it is you can get somebody on the phone. Right. Because when an artist owns their own publishing, you're right. It's easier in terms of like if they've already given consent, for example, with like a lot of our artists, you know, they always want to see whatever we're licensing so that they can give consent. But I have their contact info. Of course. If I didn't have their contact info, it would be a lot easier for me to just, you know, call Sony or Universal or whatever, you know, if they were, or, you know, Bug or whatever. I think a lot of our artists used to be signed with Bug. It is funny that I said that, though, because I am not exactly like an advocate of artists getting publishing deals, but (laughs) in terms of getting someone on the phone.
2: No, totally. I mean, but, but again, but if, if they are that great for them and, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to use your music, it doesn't mean anything. It just, it's just having that correct information. Like I'm signed to Sony ATV. Great. Right. Perfect. Like I would rather have that rather than be like, Oh, I own everything. And, you know, try to kind of, flip one by me or no 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 it's fine the manager will push it through you know for a thousand dollars like that never happens so for any (laughs) artists and managers out there who are who do have clients signed to major like unless you're like Irving Azoff or like Jimmy Iovine or any of the big managers at the front that does not happen you will not push through a license with a major label for five hundred dollars for you know broad rights just will not happen and it causes major strife between myself and my licensing people. And I don't need that. (laughs) And it's just not good. It's just not cool. Yeah. So I think knowing your business and being straight and upfront with it and being able to be reachable, that's the most important thing. And then your music has so much better of a chance of getting synced in TV, film, video games, trailers, commercials, whatever.
0: Right. So let me ask you a question that I do not know the answer to. Music supervisors work on how many projects at one time? So it's like you're working on Atlanta, which obviously is a show that has multiple episodes that you'd work on. But do you work on like other shows at the same time or do you just work on that one?
2: I work on as many as I can handle. (laughs) I can only speak for myself. But at this point, you know, I have four shows. So I have two MTV shows. The first one is Are You the One, which airs on Wednesday nights. And it's an amazing reality dating competition show that's very sweet, complex, just wrote us up. And then another MTV show. And then I do Basket for FX and just finalizing a deal with one other show that I'm very excited about. But Atlanta won't start until the end of the year because Donald is shooting Star Wars. Right. (laughs) So... You know, if someone was to call me from Netflix or any other or indie film or something, I will definitely, you know, I I just want to keep working and, you know, take on cool projects. And for me, it's I'm independent. So as many as I can handle.
0: Gotcha. And that's because that's just I'm always interested when people do things on their own, you know, when people are an independent publicist or an independent whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, how you sort of figure out your limit. I feel like it's always really interesting to find out that answer to that because I think everybody does the same thing, which is they try to have a whole bunch at first. because so they're like, I can do this. I can totally do this. And then you're like, oh, wait.
2: <laughs> I mean, it just depends, you know, on the workload for each show totally, so for, and the timing for each show. For example, Baskets is very low maintenance. So it's not nearly as intensive as some of the other shows. Are You the One is in season five. So we're a well-oiled machine and, you know, everybody, you know, we have our systems in place. We all know each other. We all know each other's best ways of doing things. And so there's not really that like learning curve of like, oh, this editor likes their stuff through box, but this editor likes it to drop box, you know, and stuff like that. So You know, for Are You the One? And then the other show, it's the same production company and it's going to be a lot of the same editors. Like it's going to be a, a ton of work, of course, but we've got our systems in place. Baskets, again, it's low maintenance, it's season two, but I know everybody and everybody knows me, and we have, you know, just great working relationships. And then the other show is a new show and it's a new network. So we'll see how that plays out, but you know, it'll be great, but it, there will be a little bit more of a learning curve of like, okay, how does this network prefer their deliverables and, you know, and and all that stuff. So just kind of getting into making sure I'm following their policies and procedures, which is fine, but there's just like, you know, it takes a minute to get that in place.
0: Of course. Wow. Wow. On that note, you've given us so much information. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Jen Malone is an independent music supervisor. Jen, thanks for being with us today on The Future of What. Thank you so much. This was super fun. Baby,
1: it's like 11 o'clock. You know we got to get over to the mall. Because I can't lie to you. If you want to stay with me, you got to. You know there's something about you, girl.
0: was Baby, Do You Like My Clothes? by Harmar Superstar. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a comment. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Are you a metal fan? Then check out the Metal Sucks podcast. Hosted by Brandon and Pete, each episode features interviews with bands like Between the Buried and Me, The Black Dahlia Murder, I Hate God, Royal Thunder, and more. Tune in every Monday to hear Brandon and Pete's take on the latest metal news, gossip, and more. Find the Metal Sucks podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Sue Jacobs. Sue, welcome to The Future of What? Oh, thank you very much. So I have read a couple things about you, and probably the thing that really captured my attention was that you actually were a vet tech before you were (laughs) a music supervisor. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> That's true. That's a true story. I don't know where that came from, but I saw that imprint. I couldn't. I. I mean, so even my dearest friends don't know that about me. But that was true. <laughs> I worked at the Woodstock Animal Hospital for many years before, and it, it actually circled back to me to to come back and help my career, which is a kind of a very you know one of those weird, you know, coincidence stories. It's how I actually met Julian Schnabel was from working on the, being known for Michael Lang, who runs Woodstock and started Woodstock. He and Julian were working on Basquiat together and he needed a music supervisor. He's like, this vet girl that I knew now does that. So it was really funny that it actually <laughs> came back to, to start my career once. That's so amazing. So how did that
0: actually happen? What's the story of how you moved from vet tech to music supervisor?
3: I, my, I mean, a lot of people, I think, all have these crazy stories, but this one's a particularly wild story was I was, I w- would also ride horses for the city people. I was living in the country up in Woodstock and the, you know, the city people would come up on the weekends and I would ride the horses and exercise the horses during the week, which was great for me because I was free yes. and and they would take care of everything. And I met a woman there that was a, a city person, though I think she was there on the weekend And she was a role character. She was a character. She was somebody that just loved the country life. And I was a total country being. And so she and I just through a a lot of coincidence, she, she was riding a horse, really struggling with her horse. And then I saw her walking her bike after I left. The and I stopped and I asked her if she wanted to ride. She became best friends, and she taught me all about. So it's really about offering somebody a ride. But wow. she and I became really inseparable friends. She taught me all about culture. She was a really high stylist. And then she thought that my life looked like ridiculously too sedentary. She's like, you need to come to the city. And (sighs) she encouraged me to take over her apartment when she moved in with her boyfriend. And I was just at that time, I had a lot of animals, but I had a rock band NRBQ based out of my home up there. Their manager moved in. And I started coming down to the city Monday through Friday and bought a little black skirt and a white shirt because I could (laughs) type well and went to a temp agency. (laughs) And through an NRBQ, Terry Adams had given me a tape to give to Rob Verboni for Bonnie Raitt, who was then at that time, they were girlfriend and boyfriend. And I did. And Rob said, I'm looking for a place to live. And I said, well, I'm looking for a job. And then Rob Verboni called me and said, hey, you want to come over to Island Records to work in A&R for a couple of weeks? And I, I didn't have a clue what anything was. I was just game. And I was like, oh, uh, sure. And I showed up, I didn't know what the word A&R meant, I didn't know anything, except I had been running an animal hospital, you know, running anesthesia, answering the phones, multitasking, and I just thought this was, that you could get paid to listen to music, was amazing to me. And hence, that's how I started, it was really all from offering Iris Lewis, who was a great stylist in the day, and for print, and she just, you know, offering her that ride, and it opened up all these doors that just seemed to magically... And three months later, I was working for Chris Blackwell. So it went super fast.
0: Wow. Wow.
3: Yeah. It was a kind of a wow.
0: (laughs) You know what's funny? Almost every person who I speak to who is a music supervisor now got into it in a weird way like that. Almost everyone has just a connection. You know, somebody hooked them up. Somebody was in the right place at the right time, made a suggestion. You know, it's, it seems to be one of those fields that people fall into in a weird way, as opposed to like, you know, going to school for it. <laughs>
3: Well, I think back then, because, you know, this was in the, and you know, I came to New York City in the 80s. So, you know, I, I think my first job that I ever really got credited as a music supervisor was I also managed, after I left the Island Records, I went on to work with Hal Wilner, who's an amazing record producer. And we also did TV shows. He does Saturday Night Live, and we did a David Sanborn night music. And so we were sort of, Reality and concept team, we were just an amazing team that produced a lot of different things, and then we went on to do shortcuts for Robert Altman, and that's kind of the first time that I worked on a movie set, and we did everything live, which, of course, nobody does. But uh, but with Bob Altman, we that was normal, and that's what I thought was normal. Like, you just go in there, you have on-camera music, and you shoot it all live, which is, you know, a good reason why people don't do a lot of that. <laughs> but uh, that, that job was really – there weren't really music supervisor. I mean, I, there were so few at that point, and it wasn't really – a career that anybody was really looking at. I think that really evolved in the nineties, but certainly in the early nineties, the term music supervisor didn't really mean anything till very recently, actually.
0: Yes. Yes, that's true. And gosh, getting a start with Robert Altman, because I always feel like his soundscapes and his movies are part of the amazing quality of his movies is just because it, you know, people are talking at once, people are whispering. I mean, it's so interesting orally you know, uh, his movies. So that's fascinating that you got your start that way.
3: Yeah, it was Shortcuts. And what was really great about Shortcuts was that, you know, there's a lot of on-camera music in Shortcuts, but we also recorded everything without vocals at the same time. And then if one goes and looks at that movie, there's a a score is all done by the instrumentals of the tracks that were just augmented. So it wow. really made the whole thing feel so, and, and this was so much what how Wilner was doing already with the multi-artists. I mean, The Edge wrote a song, Elvis Costello wrote a song. I mean, this was so up our alley at the time. How Wilner's really known for those beginning of those big multi-artist records from Nina Rota, Kurt Vile, Thelonious Monk. It, it was, I mean, the, the, Disney. I mean, this is what he did. I came in to help run those productions. Back then, the record companies would just give you a budget and you had to go run it like a production. So that's what we did. And we did many of those. So now how
0: have things changed for you in the last 20 years of doing this? I mean, you've done music supervision for some very big movies for American Hustle and Silver Linings Playbook and, you know, Little Miss Sunshine. These are big movies. How how are things different now?
3: I mean, the work is great. I've had just such good fortune with wonderful artistic directors. I mean, I've really, I always have, you know, my first film on my own after you know, I started music supervising. I also had managed Gavin Friday. You know, so I was I was in the music business though, in so many ways that when I sat with Julian Schnabel to do Basquiat, it was so fortunate because firstly, I had negotiated against myself already. I'd worked at a record label. I'd worked for as a manager. I understood publishing. So I came in with it. And Hal and I had just always developed a certain way that we cleared things. So on that sense, I think that, I, you know, always have this great fortune to have these really artistic, very strong visionary directors that I'm really honored to help facilitate their vision. And I think that's, you know, that's that's what I did with I've just it's a continuation of really being a great facilitator. I always say I'm, I'm the electricity to the appliances. I can't, I can't make anything. I I can't make anything, but I can make them run. You know, I can, I go, (laughs) okay, I know where you want to go. Okay. Let's go over here. And really coming up with creative ways to you know, I love to problem solve. And I think that's, so, you know, things are only different that budgets are, you know, super tight. I think respect for the value of music is, is can be depressing and difficult, and I feel on the front line of trying to protect that. That people feel that you know writing a song isn't work, and it's a lot of work, and mm-hmm. writing a great song. So you know I I feel very passionate about trying to be this bridge between two artists, but come at them with equal respect, regardless of whether somebody's a little band or a big director. If it's if it's a good match, then it's really two creative people with great equal value, you know, trying to make something go forward.
0: And, you know, I think you've done a particularly interesting job with films like American Hustle because, you know, that's a movie set in the 70s. So you really had to find some 70s music that wasn't just the same songs that we've heard over and over.
3: Yeah, and I mean, that's just my nature. And of course, you know, coming from managing Gavin Friday or working with the Hal Wilner or just my own, you know, being kind of musically raised by NRBQ that taught me about Sun Ra, Thelonious Mark. I mean, I was always a little left of center. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was, I mean, the band that I ran around with, I mean, I wasn't a stadium rock person as a kid. So I think the idea of looking and 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 seeing what hasn't been used, and we also had to do this when Cody Mundy and I worked together in Studio 54, that's when a lot of the 54 disco movies were coming out. And so you need that blend, you want to give people some things that they really, really know, and not everything in American Hustle is unknown. Or you, you want that blend of things that people really know, but also you're introducing them. Mm-hmm. Girl Fight was the same way. I That's just my nature to go, well, where can... And it gets harder. That does get harder because there's so much content oh, being God, made. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you're just trying to go scouring the outbins and your vinyl to find stuff that's interesting. Do
0: you do that now? Do you just listen to tons of stuff?
3: Yeah, but I you know, you listen to tons of stuff, but you listen to tons of stuff for what it can do for you, which is really an unfortunate side (laughs) effect of the problem of being a music supervisor. Right. Is that you hear the beginning of a song, you're like, Oh, that's perfect, that's perfect. Oh no, don't do that. You know, and, (laughs) and so you know, you're kind of like, you know, you find something when and every music supervisor will have this experience when you just get exactly the right tone, it's all moving in the right way it doesn't have lyrics that are a problem and then all of a sudden it does some crazy thing that just you know collapses the whole thing to like can't use it and and that's probably what i tell all my, you know, people that come in here to intern or want to be music supervisors, it's like it's all gotta fit. That's the hard part. It can't be like this is all perfect except the lyrics, or this is all <laughs> perfect except it does that thing. It's like nope, and it goes in the no nope bin. So unfortunately, it's you've really got to, you know, you've got to spend time. I try and use my vinyl listening, and on the weekends I still have my house up in Socrates and I try and do my listening really much towards just listening to music and not trying to go, you know, what can I do for me? Which is <laughs> it's really that's unfortunate side effect. And but that, that you listen differently.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I think that's part of the problem of being in the music industry is, is you know, when you do have something that you're trying to accomplish with music. You know, sometimes you you listen to it differently, but I feel like that's the ongoing conversation because I'm just so glad there's still original music being made. I would rather have people make original music than just make music trying to please certain people, you know, saying like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I definitely want to get a McDonald's commercial. So I'm going to write the perfect McDonald's commercial song, you
3: know. I mean, and I also think that just never works. I I mean, it's so easy to tell when people write from their head and when they write from their heart. You just can tell. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I could put that in front of, Anybody that's not even in the music business and say, here's four songs, pick something that you like that have, no, you know, that are have nothing to do with music or only casual listeners. And they're always going to pick the thing that somebody, you know, really gave birth to Then somebody's, you know, it's like the difference between head music and heart music. You just can tell. And it's that, you know, it's that je ne sais quoi thing. Like, what is that? But it's really, truly there that you can just feel that and that's the thing that goes when you've got a you know these directors that I'm so fortunate to work with that are making movies from their heart you can just tell when the music music made from the head is never going to go into those films it just doesn't work even if it's like kind of perfect it will be sort of too perfect or it won't have that same visible core that these directors are having with their you know, making their films, and and that's really what you're trying to do is, you know, and at the end of the day, I only present music, you know, it's, it's not, I'm just presenting things, but I do want to present things that I think are valid, and I want to present things that are like, here, here's a whole, you know, here's a whole array of things, see what you want, and a lot of directors, you know, everybody works really differently, but I don't think you can make music to be in a movie.
0: Yeah. You got to have the soul. Every song has to have soul or heart, yeah. as you you know, as you're saying. I think heart is a good word, but soul is you know that's what it is. It's empty if it doesn't have honesty and integrity. I think that's and you can. You're right. You can tell. You can tell when a song was written from the heart and when it's you know designed.
3: I know that's that that magical thing. I mean, that's isn't that so mystical to know? Because even when the designed one's so perfect, it's like what? It's just missing that. Thing, you know, that's you know that thing about being human beings, or what I mean—that's that magical part of life. I think, like, what is that thing that it, it that everything has that sort of you know invisible DNA that just makes you so excited? And and yet there is some music that lends itself better to be. I mean, music has to have space for picture and sound, and I do say that to a lot of great writers. I'm like, you know the. You, you do have to have space if your music is so that's why jazz can be difficult and I love jazz but it's got so much going on in and of its own storytelling that it's very hard to fit into a lot of scenes because it's got so much of its own thing happening that there's no room for picture or you know you have to have the exactly the right movie for that I always wanted to score a whole movie with Sunra but it's, it's <laughs> you have to find the right one wow. <laughs> awesome. Well,
0: Sue Sue Jacobs, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What today.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Portia. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Sweet Baby by The Gossip. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Brian Turcott of Beta Petrol. Brian, welcome to The Future of What. Well, thanks for having me. So I am talking to you today because you own a music production company called Beta Petrol, but you're also a very interesting human being with a long history in the music industry. So rather than just focus on that, why don't you tell me sort of how you got started in music?
4: That's such a crazy question. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in San Francisco in the 80s in the punk scene up there. So I was playing in bands up there in San Francisco and by the time I was 14 or so. And then graduated high school and decided I didn't want to go do the college thing and I wanted to move to Los Angeles and make music a career. So I did. I moved to LA when I was 18 and quickly sort of just jumped into the small scene that was happening in LA at the time in like around 1989, 1990, which would have been like Jane's Addiction and all that stuff happening sort of at the same time as the big Sunset Strip, you know, sort of rock and roll thing. Mm -hmm. And then decided that I wanted to learn as much as I could about being a musician or being in the music business, so I pretty much forced myself into a job at Slash Records. I sort of showed up there one day. Uh-huh. <laughs> a friend of mine worked there, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to work there. So I sort of showed up one day didn't really give him a choice and was like, I work here now. and <laughs> worked there for about 45 days straight with no pay before the vice president finally came down and said, okay, okay, my God, like you have a job. So, So I worked there and learned a lot about, you know, Pretty much being the assistant, starting off as a runner, I learned everything from helping out the art department, helping out you know, royalties and finance, helping out promotions, helping out radio, all that stuff. I just learned it. And then not that long after, I got signed being a bass player in a band and went on tour and saw the world that way for about six or seven years. And I guess the rest is history. I mean, from that point on, I sort of realized that i loved being in the music business and i loved being a musician but i don't think that i was 100 percent comfortable on either end like being a record label executive or being a record label owner or just being a touring musician so i guess that's sort of what pushed me into where i'm at today and, and that it's sort of i own a business i don't have to tour I can be creative, I could put the money where I think is needed in certain musicians' hands, I can go write when I want to, and I can be a standard music supervisor picking great songs from old tracks to new, scene bands, otherwise. So that's sort of, I guess, how Beta Petrol was founded and established from uh, my partner and I both sort of taking our experiences as touring musicians and as record label guys and sort of saying, we want to take Slash Records as an example and our touring and creative experience and sort of smash it together and make a sort of hybrid company that feels like a good combination of art and commerce where we don't lose sight of either side in a delicate balance.
0: I mean, I'm just interested. My mother was in advertising for years, and the word that always came to mind when I would think about that was soulless.
4: Yeah.
0: So yeah. it's just interesting. Do you guys feel? <laughs> do you feel like you have maybe a reputation in the industry? Because I mean, coming from Slash Records and with your background and your sort of extensive knowledge of the history of punk music in America, you know, do you think that you guys have a different kind of reputation? Like, you know, there are people who come to you with jobs. Sometimes you think they're expecting a little more, not just totally like, you know, make something really generic that anyone could do.
4: No doubt when we started, that was always the cornerstone of what we wanted to build. I think that we have established that and that people expect when they come to us for us to tell them what we think and to be honest and to say that's a dumb idea or, you know, that's been done before I guess in some ways we can be looked at as a a little bit maybe hard to deal with and we don't kind of come to conservative avenues of music, although we do provide that to clients that we like and work with all the time. I think most of the time people come to us to bring us on more as a partner and to have the soul of what that part of an ad or a film or whatever it is, you know, needs You know, because in our opinion, it's like you have your actors, you have your directors, you have your music, you have your story, like it's an equal part, even though oftentimes it gets, you know, treated as the last line item on the budget that always ends up getting the, you know, the budget slashed. So they're constantly looking to fill a void quick and cheap, and we just don't do that. I think that we, you know, love to sort of push back and say quality is paramount and you know, however we get there, we get there, whether it's working with an independent artist that's willing to do something very fast or whether it's a big artist that needs to bring a fan base and to bring a culture to a spot, you know, because that's essential. But we've always used that mantra of be respectful of the brand and be respectful of the band, you know, in order to make a good partnership. And, and sometimes that means we walk away and just say, no, it's not That's not cool. We're not going to use that song in this spot. You don't feel like it's right. I think that sort of puts us in a niche where people feel that we have that soul and we pay respect in that regard. And so we're not willing to sell ourselves or, or our community musicians short by cheapening something out. I mean, we've seen it a million times, you know, songs used out of context and they're used inappropriately. And it's like, oh, that's obviously done by somebody who hasn't done their research.
0: Right. It's really interesting to me because I think advertising in our culture sometimes can have a stronger effect on the culture than even, like, films or TV because more people see them in a lot of cases.
4: Mm, yeah, I think you're right about that.
0: Yeah. There have been these iconic moments, like, in my lifetime. Like, I remember remember the Volkswagen ad that used Nick Drake's Pink Moon.
4: 100%, yeah. That was a big moment.
0: That was a huge moment. I mean, it was a huge moment for obviously his estate because it completely revitalized interests in his albums. But it was also just like an amazing moment for people who pay attention to music. (laughs) Like, oh, my God.
4: Yeah. 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 I mean, there's lots of music that I personally keep off the table for reasons Mm -hmm. that I don't feel we've come to a time where... using it in advertising is is acceptable like for example if anyone were to come to us and say you know hey we want to use black flag or the dead kennedys in a spot i would just walk away and say no which is strange coming from a world where i was raised but i guess it makes sense and that i'm sort of protective of the anti-establishment side of that music and that I don't feel that that would be doing a brand a good service unless it I guess it, it's it's possible in the future that there could be something that would make sense to use a song like that right but I don't know for whatever reasons I've always enjoyed jumping into an arena like advertising where there's lots of big egos and and lots of power plays and they really do feel oftentimes like they sort of control the destiny of the world that feel very self-important. And I love jumping into that with our team to sort of compete with that in a way that's sort of like, we're the music guys. Like, no, don't tell us what to do. Like we're going to help you to do something innovative and to do something interesting, but you know, you don't get to dictate to us what's cool and what's not.
2: Right.
4: I've always sort of enjoyed taking that role at least in having a moral compass for what I feel like is, whether it's a classic old reggae song or some new indie three girl band, like whatever it is, like it ha- you know it has to make sense. And no one in advertising, as far as I'm concerned, does the actual due diligence and the research to understand how the partnerships with music can be best served. And I think that's where we fall in, and we' like to sort of consider ourselves more like a musical partner and not just a facilitator
0: absolutely. And I mean I you know that's been in my career as well because. Many bands on my label and on other labels have historically, you know, famously turned down, you know, the the band The Thermals famously turned down a Hummer ad, even though they're being offered something like 75 grand because they are environmentalists and they don't believe in that. And, you know, I feel like that's almost gotten more. You know when a band turns down an ad, then when a band is in an ad, it's it's funny. Well, look when it
4: was when we were just starting out. I mean, it's got to be we've got to be coming on just past ten years that we've been doing this. It was really not cool on a lot of levels. There was a lot of money being thrown around, but it was more likely than not for people to be hesitant, if not just outright deny the usage. Right. And then as the creative started to push forward and spots became interesting and people like younger generations were coming into those power positions, the respect of how music is used to picture, it became a little cooler. And then, and it started to push the boundaries of saying, well, look, look, let's just not just throw money at this band to use in some cheesy deodorant spot. Like, let's reserve that stuff for really cool, innovative spots where they can really be reflected in a good light. And that started to happen and the band started to become aware that it can be cool. It can be, so, you know, serving them well in terms of notoriety or in terms of recognition and certainly the financial gain of it made sense and that it was putting a decent amount of money in their pocket for a short amount of time. And I've seen time and time again, you know, the past number of years where that would make the difference between an artist surviving or not, you know, just getting fifty, seventy five, a hundred thousand dollars, for the use of a spot in America only for three to six months, like that, that could put them on the road for a year or or could put out another record or could pay for a van or whatever it it took. And I've seen a lot of bands benefit from that. So, you know, in, in that regard where commerce helps the music and there's a good partnership, as long as it's not owned or abused, you know, I've always been, a believer that they need each other unless you just want to, you know, sit in your room and create four-track demos forever, which is fine as well. But, (laughs) you know, a lot of bands want to go out and find an audience and, and make a living at it. And, you know, going back to the beginning of time, there's always been sponsorships and patrons and benefactors that have helped the music. And I feel like that's just part of it, you know? So we've sort of grown up in... You know, as the record labels start to decline and there's not a lot of money going around it, that was, for a number of years, a really good way for bands to even break, was just to get in the right spot.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
4: You know, the beginnings of all those Apple silhouette spots, I mean, geez, you could literally have a career if you got one of those spots.
0: Oh, I know. Didn't that band Jet just completely make their whole career for one of those Apple iPod ads? Totally.
4: I mean, that was a huge part of them, like Omega Wolfmother did one. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of bands that really, I mean, I think it still happens today on some level. I think you see artists and people, you know, the the stigma of it being a sellout is, is pretty much gone for the most part. Even bands that were really against it for many years, I find are sort of more open to it. And then, like I said, I'm not, I don't think it is for every band. I, I, I think you really have to make the moral decision of whether you're cool with it or not. And then, you know, look, I, you know, my friends, no age, I love those guys to death. You know, I was pitching them on certain spots and then realized like, oh man, I can't pitch milk spot for these guys. These guys are vegans. Like, you know, you just have to be aware to understand like what makes sense and what doesn't. And that's part of, What I love about the job that we all do is that we're able to do that before we even start to look for spots for a band or before we even start presenting tracks. It's just to do the research. It just takes time. And you have to be mindful and prideful of your job to be able to find the right music that fits it creatively as well as the right music that fits this brand being attached to this artist or this band or this songwriter.
0: Absolutely, it's so funny to talk to you about the concept of selling out because you and I, I think, have probably had a lot of common ground in that. I mean, I run a record label where you know, it's called Kill Rock Stars, like it was called that for a reason, mm-hmm. you know. And and we famously had tons of bands on on the label that would never do advertising of any sort. And yet, as the music industry has changed, especially over the last five to ten years, I think people have really realized that your income streams dwindle in other areas, and and to do advertising might actually make sense. And also, I think the world has expanded in terms of the opportunities. You know, it's not just advertising. There's tons of, you know, podcasting, web series and all sorts of things where, where you know, if, if a band gets a placement, it can help them, but it doesn't necessarily sell out their values.
4: I agree. I agree completely. I mean, especially now. I mean, I, I think I always like to look at what we do here as representing the integrity of the bands that we love and the songs that we've grown up with and the artists that we are just becoming friends with, you know, at the same time as we owe our clients a certain moral compass to say, this is what makes the most sense, sort of defending both sides to make a good partnership. But it's like, uh, I just think that You're right. Like the the music industry has changed like wherever it makes sense to go to sort of further the art. I mean, I'm going to go with that without pushing an agenda, without trying to say, hey, you should go for advertising. I mean, it's kind of a trend these days that there's whole departments of record labels that just focus on advertising. Like I kind of shy away from some of that. It's not for everybody. But it, it is a whole another side of how an artist can reach an audience and, and, you know, continue creating the art. I mean, it doesn't do the art community any good if they're stuck. You know, there's the record industry is tanking and their business model is, isn't is aware of how to, how to get to them. And now you have these amazing new companies that don't have large ad agencies even representing them that are, you know, the, the founders of the companies are... 25 and 30 years old, like it absolutely makes sense to partner them with cool bands and do spots that promote their companies as well as promote the artists. Like it's a whole changing world. I mean, I I definitely am a champion of young ad agencies and forward thinkers and free thinkers in that regards. I don't love the old school fifties ad agency mentality of just get it for cheap and make it happen. You know, and I don't work a lot with them. You know, there's a whole level of advertising that they don't like working with companies like ours because we're not going to just lie to them to get the job. You know, it, mm. people, you know, they're, they're used to sort of like serve the purpose, serve the greater good, and and you know that just doesn't jive well with us. Which is sort of to my comment earlier that you know we kind of buck the system in that way. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to allow someone to go after a song if I feel like it's just not right. It's just not the right. I mean, we do research on even the artists themselves, like finding causes that they represent or things that they've done. Like sometimes I don't want that to come back and bite anybody in the butt. Sometimes an artist is super willing to do a license and they don't. they don't care about that kind of thing, but then it hurts the brand because they have something in their past that goes against the grain of what this brand believes. So, I mean, you have to sort of just do the work to find where the right partnerships are, and that's where I think we excel more than most. You know, and I think it comes from being fans of music more than anything else. You know, I just don't, I don't want to ever do anything that's going to undermine the integrity that I have and the respect I have for music.
0: And on that note... Brian Turcott runs the music production house, Beta Petrol. Brian, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What. Oh, you're
4: absolutely welcome. Thank you so much. It was an honor.
0: noise won't stop by shy child and that's our show the music we played today was used by permission you heard harm our superstar the gossip shy child and of course our theme song mind your own business by the delta five subscribe to our podcast on itunes and leave us a review for more info on our shows check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what our program was engineered by brent asbury at beta petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Saban, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.
1: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own business.
0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.